I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. We are pleased to have Dr. Cesar Benaroch join us this afternoon. We're talking about the issues of addiction. Dr. Benaroch practices in Palm Beach County in Florida, and he is board certified by the American Board of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Benaroch, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. One of the things that seems to be such an issue is that addiction is so improperly treated or so not understood, it seems to be everywhere. And yet you made the comment to me that the success rate or failure rate with addictions is not that much different than treating blood pressure. That's a fantastic statistic. Yes. I think that we have the misconception that addictions are any different than other chronic medical disorders that tend to have a very high rate of recidivism or relapse. And so if you compare the relapse rate of addictions with hypertension, with asthma and diabetes, there's no much difference. Actually, uh, diabetes and asthma tend to have about a 10% more relapse rates than addiction. That's fascinating to me. Why? Why is there such a similarity or dissimilarity? Well, because I think that we have always wanted to have the illusion that uh, addiction is a discrete problem that can be taken care of or cured and then it should be over. When in fact, the more biologically oriented uh, literature has been teaching us for some time now that this is a chronically relapsing condition and that has to be managed in the same way that diabetes, hypertension, asthma has to be managed in a very empathic, hopeful way with all the technology that we have at different times. The word management is very interesting because I think a lot of people think that once they've identified or at least believe that they have an addiction problem to whichever drug, they then go into a rehab center. They're there for, what, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and then what happens? So so let's take a quick little walk here. Okay, someone does admit that they have a problem. They go into a rehabilitation center. What happens when they get there? Well, let me start a little earlier than that. The issue is how do you enter into a system of treatment? And Unfortunately or fortunately in our country, we have different paths in which people enter into treatment. The enormous majority of individuals with substance misuse or or problems uh, are treated by their general practitioners. And we have now data that shows that general practitioners, just by asking the question, reminding them of the potential problem, and encouraging them to either moderate their use or not use, make a huge difference with a very large number of people. Now, there's a small minority of individuals that don't respond to that kind of intervention. And that small minority are the ones that should really be referred for specialized care. Now, the problem that we have in this country at this point is that you don't have a very good way to screen that, other than the person who continuously have problems and get into difficulties with the law, for example, there's really no good systematized way to screen and decide who needs to go where. For the specialized treatment? That's correct. Okay, so for the general treatment, the GPs and family doctors seem to be doing pretty good overall, but it's when the more intense stuff, and we don't have a way to actually delineate that group? That's right, and that is why we run into the tragedy that most people who have a a more severe problem don't get into specialized treatment until between 8 and 10 years 
after they have had problems. At which time the habits can be very deeply engrossed and enmeshed and very complicated. Very much so. I would say, you know, my, my image is usually, uh, you know, is, is thinking about a tidal wave that affects, you know, biology, psychology, and the social network of the person. So if you have had an extended episode, like several years, all those areas are pretty devastated. Okay. Interesting. So now they call up a rehab center and they want to come in. What's going to happen to them when they get inside the doors? Okay. Here is another set of potential forks in the road. The first one has to do with do you have insurance or not? Unfortunately, but very pragmatic and very common. Right. So if you do have insurance, then you run into this interesting problem, which is that most private insurances would want you to prove that you have failed outpatient treatment before they would ever cover inpatient rehabilitation. So that's already a little bit of a setup because then the person needs to be failing and the family needs to be already exhausted and negative about treatment by the time that people can get into rehab, unless they pay pay privately. So if someone needs this pre-admission treatment that would be going to a counselor, going to AA or something like that, and that it had to fail... Well, usually what you have to fail is not only just regular outpatient sessions, but what is called intensive outpatient, which is a little bit more structured set of treatments that are available several times a week, three times a week, three evenings a week usually to allow people to work during the day. So you have to fail that in order for insurance companies to consider inpatient if they have that coverage. If there is a statistic, how many people fail that intensive outpatient modality? I don't know that we have a clear number, but, you know, my own experience is that usually when someone is in that category of people who have had problems for several years, a good 50% or so fail intensive outpatient or more. So 50% get better, 50% don't, roughly speaking. Yes. Then they come again and now they're knocking on your door. So what happens when they get in? What's different? Well, what happens in a, in an inpatient setting, and again, here there are several categories that we can talk about. The first one are the very short-term detox facilities. And detox facilities are usually hospitals or private enterprises in which the person is medically monitored for between three and five days in order to have a relatively comfortable detoxification from drugs, which means that they are pretty sick after their brain has gotten used to using. That brain is not stable. And therefore, for several days, you have a variety of physical symptoms that are very unpleasant and or dangerous. Okay. So that's why you need the inpatient monitoring. That's right. Okay. Then that passes. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten to the point in medicine where that's it's manageable, easily manageable. Then what? Then what happens? When does the, the treatment begin that's hopefully going to stop them from ever using the drugs again? Well, the treatment begins hopefully at the time of detox with planting some seeds as to what the person really needs to do. But the actual treatment starts after detoxification is over. Okay, so if, if you've got four or five days of detoxification and you've got 30 days maybe of inpatient authorization, so now you've got maybe three weeks left to do all this? Right, which is grossly insufficient. But that is why it's important to begin to think that for the next 10 to 12 months, 
you need to be thinking creatively about a variety of what I will call the uh, the Panama Canal lockstep, gradually reimmersing the individual into into the community. So you need to, in some creative way, think about how you're going to monitor that patient with different levels of structure for the next year, knowing that you have coverage for 30. That's hard. Very hard. It's almost not realistic. That is the unfortunate reality that we're faced with. And that is what families need to know, that because they're dealing with a chronically relapsing condition, they need a period of stability that is pretty prolonged in order to be able to deal with the tidal wave destruction that we talked about. That cuts across everything from job training to ability to sustain a job to cravings to assuming psychologically that you're going to live without the drug to relapses to uh, how they're dealing with their environmental stressors. There's a lot of talk and a lot of question about why this even starts in the first place. Is it the sign of a weak character, of a weak ego makeup or whatever? But there's also a great deal of work to showing that there are some various real biological underpinnings to addiction. Where do we stand in those areas? Well, my answer to that is usually that I would like anyone to find an addict that wants to be an addict. It's not a very uh, glamorous existence, or if it is, is for a very brief period of time. Later on, you live to get your fix, which is no life. So there's really no good choice of an addictive life. Unfortunately, uh, a number of people experiment and they have the right genetic makeup to uh, what I would call clinch the deal. Eventually, they become hooked, and they cannot get out of that without considerable help. One of the big problems that comes up, and this opens a door bigger than the time we have today, is the notion of, is it safe to experiment? And, and you'll hear people talk all the time, well, I smoke a little marijuana every now and then, or I do cocaine every now and then, and I don't have a problem. And it's... It, they become our anti-advertisers. Well, they're right. I think that the majority of people, I mean, I always mention the fact that every day in every hospital in this country and in the world, people are exposed to opiates uh, post-surgery or because of back pain, and only a very small minority become addicted or dependent on those drugs. So I Unfortunately, there are people, and, and maybe we're going to get better and better at predicting who are the people that are vulnerable, that should try their best not to expose themselves to trying things too much. But at this point, it's very difficult to tell. So most people are exposed, and a small number of people become dependent. Is there a difference in the way you look at the addictions between those who are addicted to <clears throat> pills such as Xanax and or the opioids such as Oxycontin or alcohol, which is also a major problem. For me, the, the only good way to sort it out at this point, given our knowledge base, is to think that the mechanisms in the brain to develop addiction are uh, similar for all drugs, including nicotine. So it really there is no much difference between being addicted to nicotine and being addicted to cocaine. Now, the next problem is that there are clearly some substances that impair you on a daily basis and others that do not. Being dependent on drugs that don't impair you too much is easier on society and is easier on the person. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're less addictive 
than someone who is on heroin. Interesting. A lot of times people also question, if not criticize, the use of medications like methadone, bifenerone, and they'll say that all we're doing is substituting one drug for the other. How would you respond to that? Well, I think that we need to be practical. And the, the practical answer is that the best treatments so far that we have for opiate addicts worldwide are substitutions like methadone maintenance and in some countries actually heroin maintenance and, and buprenorphine or suboxone maintenance currently in the U.S. What does that do? In addition to potentially having some beneficial effects in terms of resetting receptors, uh, what that does is it allows the addict to stabilize his or her life for a period of time so that they begin to have a life and therefore have mu much more incentive for them not to give everything up in the future by contributing to their relapses. Okay. Interesting again. Now, I remember years ago, we used to talk about how people needed to go in and out of treatment programs maybe three, four, five, six times before it seemed to make a difference. Do you still see that today? We still do see that today, although most people who are in the addictions field will tell you that most of their patient population are young individuals. Now, that tells you that there's probably something to be said to the fact that there is a vulnerable period in which addictions are more effervescent, like we do have with borderline personality disorder, for example. And now there's a little bit of data coming from the National Institute of Drug and Alcohol Abuse. Deborah has seen, you know, has published a, a very large study of alcoholics showing 40,000-odd individuals, showing that it seems as if there are episodes that are of several years' duration and that maybe drug addicts and alcoholics go through a very prolonged episode with multiple relapses of that same episode. And once that's over, the majority don't have multiple relapses. A few people with a malignant course would have several episodes. That's more. fascinating. It's actually rather hopeful. Very much so. Interesting, interesting. And what about the role of depressions and schizophrenias and phobias and all the other groupings of psychiatric ailments that people can, can suffer from in life, do these play a major role in the typical person who needs drug rehabilitation? They do. They do, and it has always been a, a very puzzling scientific issue as to are there biochemical genetic connections between those disorders, or as I tend to think about without knowing much more yet about other linkages, we can, we can think about all psychiatric disorders as increasing the level of misery that the person is subjected to. So if you have ADHD, if you are bipolar, if you are schizophrenic, you're going to suffer a number of consequences that are going to lead you to expose yourself maybe more to a peer group that is not successful and therefore, you're going to be exposed more. And therefore, if you have the right genetic makeup, you're going to clinch the deal. So it's a, it's a combination of the sociology, the psychology, the economics, and the biology. I believe so. Very much so. I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask another question because people are always 
struck and frightened by the large number of deaths that we see reported in the papers by prescription drug abuse and in particular of the narcotics. Um, Florida manages, as it does many times, to rank higher on these lists than others. Are these truly addicts who are needing treatment? Are they people just experimenting and getting in trouble? Is there any sort of sense yet of why this is this 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 epidemic is occurring these are very ill people and we fail to recognize that this is not a an individual that is just being careless the multiple overdoses from opiate use and abuse have to do with the fact that you're not dealing with a rational individual I mean, we know now from biology that, that the areas of the brain that are involved in addictions are the primitive, non-rational areas that have to do with survival. So you're not talking to a rational person, and that person doesn't make sense when they talk to you about why they do A, B, or C. So it's a tragic subgroup of people here. With a serious neurological disorder. And we aren't really socially reaching out to them to give them the resources and the treatments and interventions that they need. No, we still have the old notion that maybe they're choosing to be addicts. Interesting, interesting. What about cigarettes? Oh, my goodness, this has been around for so many years. Um, There are medications on the market, the patch, the gum, the pills, and so on. Are we going anywhere significantly to improve our control of, of tobacco use and reduce the problems in getting off of cigarettes? I think that we're making some inroads. You know, the the the, uh, the figures that that exist are very interesting because when you when you look at people who are likely to become dependent upon exposure, you were you, you would tend to think that you know someone who tries heroin or cocaine would tend to uh, become more addictive more addicted quicker than someone with a cigarette. The statistics are very interesting. 32% of people who are exposed to nicotine get hooked on nicotine, while 20% or so of people who are exposed to heroin and cocaine get addicted to those. So nicotine is an incredibly addictive substance. Uh, The problem, again, is that most people who smoke are able to function relatively well and therefore it becomes less of a, of a societal issue. This I, I find very interesting. I find all of this very interesting. What advice, because you've done this for a number of years, what advice would you give to a family, a parent, who suspects that someone in their family, a child, a husband, whatever, is drifting off into inappropriate, improper use of drugs? What does the family do? How do they intervene? Well, the family needs to, number one, acknowledge that fact and begin to open up lines of communication there. There should be no allowance for secrets or illusions that maybe this is not happening with uh, Johnny came back uh, and had slurred speech that night, for example. So that's the first step. The second step is that they need to do a little bit of research and identify a reasonable addiction specialist that, you know, they can start with their GP and the GP can decide with them if they need further advice as to what level of care is necessary at that point. But denial, as you know, is the major problem first, which is that you don't want to believe that this is happening. And the tip should be if there's a family history of addictions in your family, if there is and you begin to see little signs and symptoms in your offspring, 
that's the time when you need to be proactive. Fascinating, a topic that rightly would require hours and hours to look at all the details. I thank you so very much. Dr. Cesar Benaroche is a psychiatrist in Palm Beach County who has, I've known you for many years, and has done work in addictionology for an equivalent number of years, so it seems. And I appreciate your insights and observations. And I find it intriguing, I must say, that the success rate, no, I'm going to say that in the other direction. We always assume the failure rate of treating addictions is matched by the failure rate of other medical conditions, but because it's not called an addiction, it doesn't have the pejorative sense about it. Fascinating. You've given me something to think about. I thank you very much, and I I want to invite you back, and if something interesting comes up in the literature or in the world, we'll bring it to our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.